Section number five of The History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume one, chapter one of Alchemy, part five. The following table exhibits a list of his numerous writings, most of which are to be found in the Theatrum Chemicum, the Artis Aurifiae, or the Bibliotheca Chemica. 1. Praxis Universalis Magni Operis. 2. Clavicula. 3. Theoria et Practica. 4. Compendium Anime Transmutionis Artis Metallorum. 5. Ultimum Testamentum. Of this work, which professes to give the whole doctrine of alchemy, there is an English translation. 6. Elucidatio Testamente. 7. Protestus Divitorium cum Expositione Testamente Hermetis. 8. Compendium Artis Magici, Quoed Compositium Lapidus. 9. De Lapide et Oleo Philosophorum. 10. Modus Asapiende Aurum Potabile. 11. Compendium Alchemiae de Naturalias Philosophiae. 12. Lapidarium. 13. Lux Mercuriorium. 14. Experimente. 15. Ars Compendiosa vel Vadimissium. 16. De Accurtoritone Lapidus. Several other tracts besides these are named by Gamelin, but I have never seen any of them. I have attempted several times to read over the works of Raymond Lully, particularly his Last Will and Testament, which is considered the most important of them all. But they are all so obscure and filled with such unintelligible jargon that I have found it impossible to understand them. In this respect, they form a wonderful contrast with the works of Albertus Magnus and Roger Bacon, which are comparatively plain and intelligible. For an account, therefore, of the chemical substances with which he was acquainted, I am obliged to depend on Gamelin, though I put no great confidence in his accuracy. Like his predecessors, he was of the opinion that all the metals are compounds of sulfur and mercury, but he seems first to have introduced those hieroglyphical figures or symbols which appear in such profusion in the English translation of his last will and testament, and which he doubtless intended to illustrate his positions. Though what other purpose they could serve than to induce the reader to consider his statements as allegorical, it is not easy to conjecture. Perhaps they may have been designed to impose upon his contemporaries by an air of something very profound and inexplicable. For that he possessed a good deal of charlatanry is pretty evident from the slightest glance at his performances. He was acquainted with cream of tartar, which he distilled. The residue he burnt, and observed that the alkali extracted deliquist when exposed to the air. He was acquainted with nitric acid, which he obtained by distilling a mixture of saltpetre and green vitriol. He mentioned its powers of dissolving, not merely mercury, but likewise other metals. He could form aqua regia by adding sal ammoniac or common salt to nitric acid, and he was aware of the property which it had of dissolving gold. 
spirit of wine was well known to him, and distinguished by him by the names of aquae vitae ardens and argentum vivum vegetabile. He knew the method of rendering it stronger by an admixture of dry carbonate of potash, and of preparing vegetable tinctures by means of it. He mentions alum from raca, marcasite, white and red mercurial precipitate. He knew the volatile alkali and its coagulations by means of alcohol. He was acquainted with cupellated silver, and first obtained rosemary oil by distilling the plant with water. He employed a mixture of flour and white of egg, spread upon a linen cloth to cement cracked glass vessels, and used other lutes for similar purposes. 5. Arnoldus de Villanova is said to have been born at Villeneuve, a village of Provence, about the year 1240. Olas Borisius assures us that in his time his posterity lived in the neighborhood of Avignon, that he was acquainted with them, and that they were by no means destitute of chemical knowledge. He is said to have been educated at Barcelona, under John Casamila, a celebrated professor of medicine. This place he was obliged to leave in consequence of foretelling the death of Peter of Aragon. He went to Paris, and likewise travelled through Italy. He afterwards taught publicly in the University of Montpelier. His reputation as a physician became so great that his attendance was solicited in dangerous cases by several kings and even the Pope himself. He was skilled in all the sciences of his time, and was besides a proficient in Greek, Hebrew, and Arabic. When at Paris he studied astrology, and calculating the age of the world, he found that it was to terminate in the year 1335. The theologians of Paris claimed against this and several other of his opinions, and condemned our astrologer as a heretic. This obliged him to leave France, but the Pope protected him, he died in the year 1313, on his way to visit Pope Clement V, who lay sick at Avignon. The following table exists a pretty full list of his works. 1. Antidotorium. 2. De Vigny. 3. De Aquis Laxativus. 4. Rosarius Philosophorum. 5. Lumen Novum. 6. De Sigillus. 7. Flos Florum. 8. Apostoli Super Alchemia and Regium Neapolitanium. 9. Liber Perfectionis Magisteri. 10. Secusa Carmina. 11. Questions de Arte Transmutionis Metallorum. 12. Testamentum. 13. Lumen Luminum. 14. Practica. 15. Speculum Alchemiae. 16. Carmen. 17. Questions at Bonifacium. 18. Semita Semitiae. 19. De Lapida Philosophorum. 20. De Sanguine Humano. 21. De Spiritus Vini. Vino Artimonae et Germorem Viribus. Perhaps the most curious of all these works is the Rosarium, which is intended as a complete compend of all the alchemy of his time. The first part of it on the theory of the art is plain enough, but the second part on the practice, which is subdivided into thirty-two chapters, and which professes to teach the art of making the philosopher's stone, is in many places quite unintelligible to me. 
He considered, like many of his predecessors, mercury as a constituent of metals, and he professed a knowledge of the philosopher's stone, which he could increase at pleasure. Gold and gold water was, in his opinion, one of the most precious of medicines. He employed mercury in medicine. He seems to designate bismuth under the name marcasite. He was in the habit of preparing oil of turpentine, oil of rosemary, and spirit of rosemary, which afterwards became famous under the name Hungary water. These distillations were made in a glazed earthen vessel, with a glass top and helm. His works were published at Venice in a single folio volume in the year 1505. There were seven subsequent editions, the last of which appeared at Strasbourg in 1613. 6. John Isaac Hollandus and his countrymen of the same name were either two brothers or a father and son, it is uncertain which. For very few circumstances respecting these two laborious and meritorious men have been handed down to posterity. They were born in the village of Stolk in Holland, it is supposed in the thirteenth century. They were certainly after Arnoldus de Villanova, because they refer to him in their writings. They wrote many treatises on chemistry, remarkable considering the time when they wrote, for clearness and precision, describing their processes with accuracy, and even giving figures of the instruments which they employed. This makes their books intelligible, and they deserve attention because they show that various processes, generally supposed of a more modern date, were known to them. Their treatises are written partly in Latin and partly in German. The following list contains the names of most of them. 1. Opera vegetabilia ad edius alia opera intelligenda necessaria. 2. Opera mineralia su de lapide philosophico libro duo. 3. Tractat vom Stein der Weissen. 4. Fragmenta quidem chemica. 5. De triplice ordine elixiris e lapidis theoria. 6. Tractatus de Salibus et Oleus Metallorum. 7. Fragmentum de Opera Philosophorum. 8. Reares Chemiae Operations. 9. Opus Saturni. 10. De Spirito Uranii. 11. Hander Philosopher. Olas Baricius complains that their opera mineriala abound with processes, but that they are ambiguous, and such that nothing certain can be deduced from them even after much labor. Hence they draw on the unwary Tiro from labor to labor. I am disposed myself to draw a different conclusion from what I have read of that elaborate work. It is true that the processes which profess to make the philosopher's stone are fallacious, and do not lead to the manufacture of gold, as the author intended, and expected. But it is a great deal when alchemistical processes are delivered in such intelligible language that you know the substances employed. This enables us easily to see the results in almost every case, and to know the new compounds which were formed during a vain search for the philosopher's stone. Had the other alchemists written as plainly, the absurdity of their researches would have been sooner discovered, and thus a useless or pernicious investigation would have sooner terminated. 7. Basil Valentine is said to have been born about the year 1394, and is perhaps the most celebrated of all the alchemists, if we accept Paracelsus. 
He was a Benedictine monk at Erfurt in Saxony. If we believe Olaus Borrichius, his writings were enclosed in the wall of a church at Erfurt and were discovered long after his death in consequence of the wall having been driven down by a thunderbolt. But this story is not well authenticated and is utterly improbable. Much of his time seems to have been taken up in the preparation of chemical medicines. It was he that first introduced antimony into medicine, and it is said that on no good authority that he first tried the effects of antimonial medicines upon the monks of his convent, upon whom it acted with such violence that he was induced to distinguish the mineral from which these medicines had been distracted by the name of antimoan, hostile to monks. What shows the improbability of this story is that the works of Basil Valentine, and in particular his curious triumphalist antimoni, were written in the German language. Now, the German name for antimony is not antimoine, but spice-glass. The curious triumphalist antimony was translated into Latin by Kirkingius, who published it with an excellent commentary at Amsterdam in 1671. Basil Valentine's writes with almost as much virulence against the physicians of his time as Paracelsus himself did afterwards. As no particulars of his life have been handed down to posterity, I shall satisfy myself with giving a catalogue of his writings, and then pointing out the most striking chemical substances with which he was acquainted. The books which have appeared under the name of Basil Valentine are very numerous, but how many of them were really written by him? and how many are suppositions is extremely doubtful. The following are the principal. 1. Philosophia Occulta. 2. Tractat von Naturlichen and Übernaturlichen Dingen. Ach von dern ersten Tinktur, Wurzel und Geist der Metallen. 3. Von dern Grossen Stein der Urherlaten. Vertrechtelin vom Stein der Weissen. 5. Cursor on Hang und Klar Repetition oder Riederlein vom Grossen Stein der Uralten. 6. De Prima Materia Lapidus Philosophie. 7. As of Philosorum, se Ariali Occulte de Materia Lapidus Philosophorum. 8. Apocalypsis Chemica. 9. Claves 12 Philosophi. 10. Practica. 11. Opus proclaim ad atrumca, quod protestamante dedit filio sua abdapivo. 12. Listis testament. 13. De microcosmo. 14. Von der Grossen Heimler der Welt and Erer Arzni. 15. Von der Luisenschaft der Seiben Planeten. 16. Offenbarung der Vabagon Hagrifa. 17. Conclusions or Schuschlinden. 18. Dialogues Frietis Alberte cum Spiritu. 19. Des Fito el Fermanto Philosophum. 20. Haleographia. 21. Triumph Wagen Antimony. 22. Einiger Regzer Weitlebt. 23. Licht der Nature. The only one of these works that I have read with care is Kirkingingius's translation and commentary on the Curus Triumphalus Antimoni. It is an excellent book, written with clearness and precision, and contains everything respecting antimony that was known before the commencement of the 19th century. 
How much of this is owing to Kirkringius I cannot say, as I have never had an opportunity of seeing a copy of the original German work of Basil Valentine. Basil Valentine, like Isaac Hollandus, was of opinion that the metals are compounds of salt, sulfur, and mercury. The philosopher's stone was composed of the same ingredients. He affirmed that there exists a great similarity between the mode of purifying gold and curing the diseases of men, and that antimony answers best for both. He was acquainted with arsenic, knew many of its properties, and mentions the red compound which forms with sulfur. Zinc seems to have been known to him, and he mentions bismuth, both under its own name, and under that of marcasite. He was aware that manganese was employed to render glass colorless. He mentions nitrate of mercury, alludes to corrosive sublimate, and seems to have known the red oxide of mercury. It would be needless to specify the preparations of antimony with which he was acquainted. Scarcely one was unknown to him which, even at present, exists in the European pharmacopoeia. Many of the preparations of lead were also familiar to him. He was aware that lead gives a sweet taste to vinegar. He knew sugar of lead, litharge, yellow oxide of lead, white carbonate of lead, and mentions that this last preparation was often adulterated in his time. He knew the method of making green vitriol and the double chloride of iron and ammonia. He was aware that iron could be precipitated from its solution by potash, and that iron has the property of throwing down copper. He was aware that tin sometimes contains iron, and ascribed the brittleness of Hungarian iron to copper. He knew that oxides of copper gave a green color to glass, that Hungarian silver contained gold, that gold is precipitated from aqua regia by mercury in the state of an amalgam. He mentions fulminating gold, but the important facts contained in his works are so numerous, while we are so uncertain about the genuineness of the writings themselves, that it will scarcely be worth while to proceed further with the catalogue. Thus I have brought the history of alchemy to the time of Paracelsus, when it was doomed to undergo a new and important change. It will be better. of true chemistry, and in the first place to endeavor to determine what chemical facts were known to the ancients, and how far the science had proceeded to develop itself before the time of Paracelsus. End of section 5. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio. InterfaceAudio.com.